It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the adult content discussed in this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode depicts sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a beautiful D.C. morning in the spring of 2005 before the weather turned muggy and the streets lethargic. Claire had just gotten her nails done, and she still had an hour before class. Might as well run up to her apartment and phone Julie. She needed to vent about last night. She picked up the phone, barely glancing at the post-it taped to the wall beside it. She knew the number by heart. Julie, Pamela Martin and Associates. As soon as Julie's calm, hello, answered the phone, Claire launched into her saga. Last night's John had been a strange dude. He looked as respectable as they all did in his perfectly tailored suit and Italian shoes. But what he'd wanted to do in the bedroom when they got back to the hotel... Julie cut Claire off right there. With an unusually curt voice, she admonished, don't talk about that stuff on this line. This wasn't a game. Julie, or rather Deborah Jean Palfrey, knew that all too well. She'd been to jail before. But this time, she wasn't going to let foolish mistakes compromise her empire. This time, if the feds tried to topple her, she'd pull down all of Capitol Hill in her wake. Welcome to Political Scandals, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. In the lead-up to the 2020 election, we're counting down the 54 biggest scandals in U.S. history. Every week until November 3rd, 2020, we'll look at how each of these moments shaped American politics and culture, and what we can learn from the failures of the past. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Political Scandals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Political Scandals in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In today's episode, we're exploring scandal number 53, the mid-aughts prostitution saga that rocked Washington, D.C. In 2007, Deborah Jean Palfrey, better known as the D.C. Madam, was indicted for racketeering and money laundering. Her escort services client list included men from the highest reaches of the U.S. government, ranging all the way into the dark halls of the White House. 
and her death by hanging in 2008, two weeks after her guilty verdict, called into question just how far the corruption ran. By 2006, 50-year-old Deborah Jean Palfrey had been running Pamela Martin & Associates for 13 years. She had a good thing going. Her client list included everyone in town who mattered, from Pentagon advisors to senators to the Deputy Secretary of State. She'd served as many as 15,000 clients, around 80% of whom were repeat customers. She had built up a great group of gals, as she called them, too. They were almost all college-educated women, older than 23 and ranging up into their 50s. They all had day jobs or were in school. And while many of them were pretty, what mattered more to Deborah was their poise, their slim figures, and what she called their Ann Taylor style. Sophisticated women for sophisticated clients. It was a very different kind of operation than the one she tried to set up in San Diego in the late 80s. She'd started in good faith after trying out escort work herself to supplement her income as an interior designer, she was, quote, appalled and disgusted by how seedy, lazy, and incompetent most escort agencies were. But her first foray into running her own escort agency was a failure. She made little mistakes left and right. Police had caught on to the fact that her operation stumbled across the thin line separating legal escort work and illegal prostitution. An escort could peddle sexual fantasy and stay on the right side of the law. But as soon as she engaged in anything considered by local courts to be an illegal sex act, she could be prosecuted. The mistakes of Deborah's first escort agency, however, were far away by now, way back in 1992. Now, Deborah had experience as well as her college degree and excellent work ethic. And she had a better playing ground. While she ran her operation by phone from Vallejo, California, all her business took place in D.C. And D.C., unlike San Diego, was chock full of her target clientele. Those clients appreciated that she never asked for their real names. The so-called gals, meanwhile, liked that she never forced them to take more jobs than they wanted, and that as long as she got her 50% of their official fee, she never asked for a cut of their tips. In short, things couldn't have been going better. At least, not on the surface. But this was Washington, and Washington under a conservative president to boot. George W. Bush had been in office for the past six years, and his administration wasn't exactly friendly to sex workers. Randall L. Tobias, at that time the United States Director of Foreign Aid and a Deputy Secretary of State, was one example, although he didn't create the policy that said in order to receive U.S. aid, you had to denounce sex work. That would be Congress. Tobias's background wasn't in policymaking at all. He worked in big business, pharmaceuticals, and at AT&T until George W. Bush nominated him to be the United States Global AIDS Coordinator in 2003. Tobias was a Christian Midwestern Republican. 
the conservative anti-prostitution requirements that Congress had tied to the Foreign Aid Fund were in line with his own values. In an interview with PBS, Tobias explained, The Congress, I think very appropriately, has put into the legislation that organizations, in order to receive money, need to have a policy opposed to prostitution and sex trafficking. I don't think it's too difficult for people to be opposed to prostitution and sex trafficking, which are in fact two contributing causes to the spread of HIV-AIDS. Tobias and his office weren't alone in their publicly negative view of sex work. D.C. in the mid-aughts was a risky environment for running an escort service. Deborah, in response, was careful. She never explicitly referenced anything illegal on the phone with her employees or the Johns. She talked exclusively about sexual fantasy, never specific sex acts. And it was specifically exchanging sex acts for money that was illegal, according to the D.C. laws regarding sex work. Deborah hoped making sure her business never referenced them should be enough to keep her safe. But she had a backup safety net, too. Deborah was reassured by the fact that Randall Tobias, like many other lawmakers across the political spectrum, was her client. Conservatives like Tobias might be condemning prostitution on the political stage, but that hypocrisy gave them all the more reason to want their illicit extracurricular activities to stay in the shadows. A sex scandal could crush a political career instantly. And not just because sex work was, for the most part, illegal. It was also embarrassing. And for conservatives elected on platforms emphasizing traditional Christian values, infidelity in general and prostitution in particular were ungodly moral indiscretions. Voters were unlikely to excuse them. So, Deborah hoped, If all else failed and law enforcement started to pursue a case against Pamela Martin and Associates, her Johns would step in and bury the case, if not to protect her, then to protect themselves. Because they were everywhere. The judicial system, the army, government agencies of every kind, as well as, of course, on Capitol Hill. Deborah may have been right to hope that her many powerful Johns would keep any investigations into her business from getting very far, case in point being the trajectory of the investigation launched in 2001, or rather, the lack thereof. The Postal Service noticed an unusually high number of money orders being delivered to Deborah's P.O. box in San Diego in 2001, coming from about 25 women. But it took the federal government all of three years to start investigating this oddity. Then, even after the investigation launched in June 2004, it moved slowly. If it was the protection of some powerful Washington customer that slowed down the investigation, however, his power eventually reached its limits. In October 2006, two years after the investigation launched, Law enforcement got a search warrant for Deborah's Vallejo, California home. They raided her papers and seized almost half a million dollars worth of assets. 
51-year-old Deborah was on vacation in Germany when the warrant was issued and the raid carried out. But she didn't stay away. She was confident that this saga was only just beginning and that when it finally ended, she would win. She had several reasons to think that. First of all, there were her precautions. She'd never explicitly spoken with the girls about sex, and her contracts with them actually forbid both penetrative and oral sex, which were what the law most regularly defined as sex acts. There was absolutely no proof that she knew about illegal activities occurring under her auspices. If some of her girls were having sex, that was their own problem, not hers. Then there were her phone records. Investigators had failed to seize them out of her dusty basement when they searched her home. And she felt sure these records would prove to be an important bargaining chip. Meanwhile, the prosecution was assembling its own arsenal. In exchange for immunity from prosecution, they got 15 Jane Doe's on record, saying they had sex with clients while working for Pamela Martin and Associates. These women admitted that they never discussed sex explicitly with Deborah, or Julie as they knew her. But they were all confident that she knew what was going on, and her euphemisms about sexual fantasy were simply to protect her from prosecution in exactly a situation like this. Investigators also found copies of Deborah's newsletters, which she emailed to her girls regularly. These newsletters detailed tips, tricks, and guidelines the women should follow while at work. They shouldn't drink or do drugs. They should always lock the door, double and triple lock it when with clients. They should let the men undress first. Precautions like the triple door lock certainly hinted that Deborah knew something untoward was happening while the girls were on her clock. And the references to undressing certainly sounded like precursors to sex. Statements like the following looked particularly damning. Quote, Adult service or fantasy escorts command a substantially greater fee, usually $200 an hour. This, of course, because of the risky and sexual nature of these appointments. Obviously, the more liberal the booking or act, the more money one makes. Therefore, if anyone thinks that fantasy prices can ever be charged for purely social services, all this writer can say is that the person is a damned fool. This past weekend, this new escort, no longer amongst us, thought she could go there, collect the $200, and just talk. Her mere presence being justification enough here for the big bucks. Wrong. It certainly sounds like she's encouraging her girls to have sex with clients, although it's notable that she never explicitly says anything about penetrative or oral sex, and sexual can cover a whole range of legal activities, too. Deborah also qualifies these kinds of statements in her newsletters by explaining, quote, The misogynists get a real kick out of surprising, shocking you, and we're not doing anything wrong. But they sure as heck try to make anything we do into something wrong. Whether or not she was referring to illegal sex acts, Deborah made it clear that the moral judgments of wrong in this industry came from a misogynistic perspective. 
Law enforcement hated to see women using their sexuality for personal gain and would do whatever they could to punish them for it. First and foremost, by labeling the women's behavior wrong while ignoring men's central role in the exchange. How moral versus legal wrong fit together here is unclear. But Deborah was sure of one thing. She knew how easily those definitions could be and were manipulated by people in power. Regardless of the nuances in these texts, on March 1st, 2007, Deborah was indicted. And she was right to speculate that misogyny, as well as the privileges of power, would dictate how her activities were perceived by the public and treated by the legal system. But she was more than ready to fight back. Coming up, we'll delve into the dramatic battle between Deborah and the courts. Now, back to the story. On March 1st, 2007, 51-year-old Deborah Jean Palfrey, or the D.C. Madam as the papers dubbed her, was indicted by a Washington, D.C. grand jury. The case included charges of racketeering and money laundering, but Deborah was ready to meet the court's challenge. Her legal strategy was to maintain that if her employees did anything illegal during their appointments, it was without her knowledge. But she also had another strategy. She was going to convince Washington and all of the U.S. that if there was anyone to blame here, it was her powerful clients, who abused their status as elected officials and policymakers by breaking the laws they were meant to uphold. And the conservative family values Republicans amongst them had hypocritically abandoned the Christian morality they were trying to force on America to boot. That should be enough to ruin a few political careers and take the attention off of her and any crimes she was accused of. If they'd had sex with her girls, that is. Meanwhile, if they maintained like her that her service wasn't meant for sex, but rather for legal sexual fantasy, then they could serve as witnesses for her defense. It was a win-win either way. All she had to do was find a way to make her clients' names public, despite the fact that she didn't know many of their names. But she did know their phone numbers. Deborah announced to the press that she would sell her phone records to the highest bidding news agency. These records contained 10,000 to 15,000 clients' phone numbers. And while she didn't know the real names behind all of those numbers, she knew a news agency had the resources to find out. But she didn't stop there. She also, in court documents, outed one client whose name she did know, Harlan K. Ullman. She chose this candidate carefully. Ullman was an academic whose claim to fame was a scholarly paper he wrote on military strategy, coining the term shock and awe, a term later used in the U.S. war in Iraq. Thanks to his prestige in Washington circles, Ullman demonstrated the caliber of Deborah's clients. But she also chose him because he was, in her words, an unpleasant man. 
she didn't feel guilty about exposing his indiscretions to family and friends, as well as the American people. Ullman's response was dismissive. He stated that the accusation doesn't deserve the dignity of a response. But it certainly had the desired effect of getting Washington talking. According to Deborah's lawyer, Montgomery Blair Sibley, five other lawyers contacted him asking whether their clients' names were in Deborah's phone records. And some, Sibley claimed, asked if anything could be done to ensure their identities stayed private. Deborah's plan was working. She was in control of the narrative, and the public was listening. When, in late March, she handed her records over to ABC, the entire city was on edge, breathless for the results of the news agency's investigation. Some because they knew their numbers were on the list. But everyone else wanted to know, too. This was a salacious drama, and one that Washingtonians understood could have very real consequences on the government. Washington in the spring of 2007 was no stranger to sex-tinged drama. Less than two years before, a major scandal had rocked the Capitol in the form of corruption charges against Republican Congressman Randy Duke Cunningham. Those charges had focused on monetary kickbacks the congressman received from defense contractors. But there were hints that he'd been paid in escort services, too a black mark against a Christian in a case that was already extremely bleak. The result of the scandal was Cunningham's resignation and a tense runoff election that almost cost Republicans the seat. And of course, no one could forget the 1998 Bill Clinton impeachment scandal. It wasn't just family values Republicans who were vulnerable to censure for sexual misconduct the Democratic president was almost removed from office after lying under oath about an extramarital affair. A good sex scandal could bring down almost any politician, thanks to the genre's perfect storm of immorality and, at least in cases involving prostitution, illegality. The city was anxious to know who this new drama might take down, in part because of the gossipy nature of the information, but in part because it had the potential to shift around the key players in Washington's high-stakes political games. April passed slowly in the Capitol as ABC's researchers slogged through 46 pounds of phone records. But finally, in late April, events started to pick up speed. ABC announced that amongst Deborah's clients were senior business executives NASA officials, and at least five military officers. Then, on April 26th, the network called Randall Tobias, Deputy Secretary of State and a married man, and asked him to confirm that he used Deborah's escort service. Mortified, he admitted that he had, but just for massages. In fact, he added, he'd lately been using a different service for massages, one which provided Central American gals, as he called them. That little detail did nothing to help his case, and the massage bit in general fell flat. Few people believed him, 
plus his record of withholding foreign aid from countries with legalized sex work made the whole affair look even worse. He was a hypocrite on top of breaking the law. The day after ABC called on April 27, 2007, Tobias resigned. Deborah's plan wasn't working perfectly. It didn't look great for her case that the public dismissed Tobias's massage claims out of hand. But her other angle had worked. Tobias was the bad guy. And by handing over her client list, she was starting to look like an avenging angel fighting for rule of law over dirty politicians. Her quotes to that effect circulated around the nation's papers, including... I abhor injustice, on any level and in any forum. I frankly persist, despite life's barriers, and I never could stomach injustice, social or otherwise. She was the feminist, the woman prosecuted for tiny errors where men got away with murder. And in the fall of 2007, with President George W. Bush's conservative government struggling to keep approval ratings above 30%, that more liberal mindset was getting decent traction. But then, ABC stopped naming names. They announced that no one else in the phone records was newsworthy, and they weren't, quote, going to out low-level analysts in the Pentagon. This is 2020, not the Pentagon Times. On top of that, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia issued a protective order blocking the release of the phone records to prevent the potential intimidation of witnesses. This was not the plan. If more men weren't named, Deborah might not get any Johns to testify. They certainly wouldn't come forward of their own accord to save her. But if they were outed, they'd have a reason to take the stand and corroborate her claims that her agency didn't provide any illegal sexual services. Doing so would clear their names as well as hers. And on top of that, without more hypocritical government boys to point at, the public would forget her message. The bad guys here were the men. Deborah, furious, determined that ABC was bowing to pressure from the government. She knew there were more newsworthy names on the list. At least a hundred, she told reporters. She just had to get it out to other researchers. But thanks to the court order, she couldn't. With the help of her lawyer, she did everything possible to get that court order lifted. And on July 5th, finally, she did. Within an hour of receiving the judge's revision, Deborah and her lawyer had 50 CD-ROMs in the mail on their way to journalists around the country, each one containing the entirety of her phone records. Then she listed the same telephone numbers publicly on her website. It took only a few days for journalists to turn up another name that they deemed newsworthy, Louisiana Senator David Vitter. Elected on a conservative family values platform, Vitter, like Tobias before him, was an ironic figure to appear on Deborah's list. He responded, however, with more poise than Tobias had, sending out a well-worded statement on July 9th. This was a very serious sin in my past, 
for which I am, of course, completely responsible. Several years ago, I asked for and received forgiveness from God and my wife in confession and marriage counseling. Out of respect for my family, I will keep my discussion of the matter there, with God and them. But I certainly offer my deep and sincere apologies to all I have disappointed and let down in any way. This statement and an ensuing July 16th press conference helped Vitter garner support from other Republicans, enough support that he wasn't pressured to resign from his post like Tobias had been. In fact, he kept his seat in the Senate until 2017 when he retired from public office. Vitter's success marked a turning point in Deborah's campaign against the government. When journalists failed to turn up any more names they deemed newsworthy, she started to shift her angle of attack to another aspect of the case. The fact that her escort agency, and only her agency, was being prosecuted. The government, Deborah announced, was conspiring against her. Coming up, we'll hear about Deborah's final fight with the courts and the dramatic aftermath of her trial. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 2007, Deborah Jean Palfrey decided it was time for a new line of attack against the courts and the government. They were prosecuting her for running a prostitution ring, and the case wasn't about any single client— As she explained in an interview, this case is not about Louisiana Senator David Vitter. Rather, it was about the fact that she could and did list over 80 D.C. escort agencies in her court filings, but none of them were under investigation. Why her, she demanded of journalists and of the courts. What had brought her agency to the attention of the government when they were so uninterested in the other escorts servicing Washington's elite. Some journalists felt she was losing her grip as she repeated these questions again and again, sounding more conspiratorial with every complaint. Her agency just happened to be the one that investigators received a tip about. Unfortunately, justice was never universally evenly applied. But the questions started to feel more relevant as Deborah's case dragged on, and a parallel case emerged in New York. Starting in October 2007, federal investigators were, in fact, investigating another escort service, Emperor's Club VIP. The investigation, which the New York Times announced to the public in March 2008, caused a media flurry not dissimilar to Deborah's, likely because it, too, involved a prominent political figure. Elliot Spitzer, or Client Number 9, as the Emperor's Club called him, was at the center of the investigation. But there was a major difference between the Emperor's Club and Deborah's operation. Deborah's service charged $300 an hour, compared to the upwards of $1,000 an hour billed by the Emperor's Club. While Deborah cleared around $2 million over the course of 13 years running her business, the Emperor's Club made $1 million in just four years. 
Which is to say, while Deborah's hourly rate put the minimum wage to shame, her operation was, in the world of high-class escort businesses, comparatively modest. So why was her little operation one of only two escort services under investigation, she demanded? Surely the government had other bigger fish to fry, fish that were in the league of the Emperor's Club. This emphasis on the modesty of her operation was certainly a different tactic than her earlier defense, which focused on just how prominent and powerful her clients were. But one part of her original defense remained unchanged. The courts were treating her case misogynistically. Deborah railed against the fact that while many of her former employees were called to the stand, convinced to testify with promises of immunity, none of her customers testified. And going public with escort work was incredibly difficult. These women faced stigma and shame in the public sphere, and for many of them, in their personal lives, too. One of the former escorts, Brandy Britton, was so devastated by the process that she died of suicide in 2007, before she could be brought to the stand. Deborah wasn't particularly sympathetic about Brandy's death. In fact, she told the press, I guess I'm made of something that Brandy Britton wasn't made of. But the death was just another example proving her point. As usual, while men were getting off scot-free, the women were paying a terrible price. But the jury, in the end, wasn't convinced by Deborah's claim that the government was persecuting her. Nor were they interested in her high-level arguments about the gendered application of justice. They didn't buy her argument that she had been blissfully ignorant of her employees' illegal sexual services either. On April 15, 2008, the jury found 52-year-old Deborah guilty of money laundering, using the mail for illegal purposes, and racketeering. Her maximum sentence was 55 years, though sentencing guidelines would likely put the final number closer to six years. Deborah was devastated. She was immediately taken back to her 1991 conviction and the terrors of her time in jail. One of her fellow inmates would punch her throat and face every day. Eighteen months had felt endless. She'd lost her spirit and her gumption. Now, remembering that experience with despair, she did a 180 on her comments about her former employee Brandy Britton's suicide. She told her friend and journalist Dan Moldea, I'm not going back to jail. I'll kill myself first. I'll commit suicide first. It was in this state of anguish that Deborah traveled from D.C. down to Tarpon Springs, Florida, where her mother lived, while awaiting sentencing. It was late April, already warm and sticky in the waterfront town, a world away from Washington and the chaos of Deborah's last year. How this change of scenery affected Deborah's mental state remains one of the biggest mysteries of her story. It may have proved steadying. Her despair at the jury's guilty verdict may have started to fade, and her determination to survive this scandal may have strengthened. 
Things had changed since she went to jail in 1991, after all. She'd run a successful business for 13 years. She'd made a respectable amount of money for herself. She'd come into her own. And remember the vehemence of her comment on her former employee's suicide. I guess I'm made of something that Brandy Britton wasn't made of. She was proud of the strength she'd won for herself and dismissive of what she deemed to be weakness. Plus, she was still highly suspicious of government forces conspiring against her. That kind of injustice and mystery was motivational for a fighter like Deborah Jean. But despite all that, on May 1st, two weeks after her conviction, Deborah was found hanged in a shed behind her mother's home. The police report deemed the death a suicide. But immediately, suspicions erupted in Washington and around the country. Deborah, after all, had said that she was made of something that her former employee, Britton, wasn't made of. Plus, it was odd for two women involved with the same case to both die by hanging, especially considering it's a less common suicide method for women. Deborah had kept the most private secrets of many powerful men. Skeptics wondered if there was some secret that was too dangerous to let out, something bigger than Ullman, Tobias, and Vitter. But there are some issues with this speculation. First of all, Deborah left two suicide notes in her own distinctive writing style. And second of all, it's difficult to hang someone else and make it look like suicide. But it's certainly possible to coerce someone into writing a suicide note and hanging themselves. There's a bigger issue with the idea that Deborah was killed to ensure her silence, however. If she was still sitting on some enormous secret, why had she kept quiet about it, not only through her trial, but for two weeks after her conviction? It could be that she had no idea the information she was sitting on. She didn't, after all, know the names of all of her clients. But if she didn't know what intel she had, then killing her was a bit premature. We have, however, had a recent suggestion that perhaps there was at least one more piece of important information buried in Deborah's files. In February 2016, Montgomery Blair Sibley, Deborah's former lawyer, attempted to lift a 2007 restraining order that bars him from releasing more of Deborah's records. He claimed that they contain information relevant to the 2016 presidential election. The Supreme Court, however, rejected Sibley's request. Whatever information he wanted to share stayed hidden during the 2016 elections. And so the fascinating final mystery of the D.C. Madam scandal remains unsolved. Whatever secrets are hidden in Deborah's grave, her impact on a particular cultural moment isn't debatable. Her case captivated Washington during an era when family values and morality were at center stage of conservative politics. In 2008, the same year of Deborah's death, Sarah Palin would represent the religious right and Tea Party sensibilities on the Republican presidential ticket. 
Just like Randy Duke Cunningham's corruption scandal, Deborah's case sparked discussions about the hypocrisy of lawmakers who fell far short of the values they preached. It also spurred conversations about gender, power, and the uneven application of justice. While one out of the three men Deborah's case publicly implicated, Tobias, lost his job, the other two were largely unaffected by the scandal in the long term. Ullman continues to write books. His most recent was published in 2017 and work in the private sector. Vitter retired from the Senate just two years ago and now works as a lobbyist. The men are doing all right. The women, on the other hand, didn't fare as well. Deborah is, as we've discussed, dead, along with Brandy Britton, one of her employees. Another woman outed as an escort during the case lost her day job in the military. In the 11 years since Deborah's death, American politics and cultural norms have shifted enormously. But questions of corruption, powerful people who behave like they're above the law, are still central to national debates. Sex work, meanwhile, remains illegal in most parts of the United States. But some sex workers are actively trying to change that, and their fight is gaining momentum. We can see the legacy of the D.C. madam refracted through all of this. 2008 wasn't, after all, very long ago. Next week, coming in at number 52 on our countdown, we'll look at a scandal involving some of the very same issues back in the 1790s. The Hamilton-Reynolds affair was one of the very first sex scandals in American political history. At first, Alexander Hamilton tried to hide his indiscretions by paying up his blackmail money. But eventually, as other dark, corrupt secrets were tied up with that hush money, the affair blew out into the open. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with number 52 on our countdown, The Hamilton Reynolds Affair. You can find all episodes of Political Scandals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Political Scandals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Political Scandals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Political Scandals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Political Scandals was written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>